the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast, where we are keeping you off Netflix one episode at a time. I'm Matt Lynch, and I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope that you are doing well and that you're staying safe and healthy. Um, This is an episode with Drew Johnson and AJ Culp, and we hope that you enjoy it. Thanks for your support, especially those of you who donate regularly. we couldn't do this without you and and really there are like just the other day i had to up our um hosting whatever supply bandwidth thing and um that's something we're able to do because you've all supported us so generously so thanks so much for that if you'd like to give you can go over to onscript.study forward slash donate and you can do so uh or if you'd like to you know support other podcasts too it's not just about us so find find a podcast that feeds your soul and and you think is is doing something important in the world and and help them out we hope you enjoy this episode and do share the word you know maybe uh i don't know i'm running out of ideas here um you could um uh, ah time capsules we haven't talked about that um you time capsules are, are very popular historically um, so it, we plan to be at this for a long time. So if you're putting a time capsule in the ground, let's say 20 year time capsule, you're looking at 2040 for that thing to open, um, on script.study forward slash, well, I was going to say donate, but just on script.study. And then when someone digs it up in 20 years, they've, they've got it right there in front of them. And think of, think of the, um, the, the number of people that would find out. Uh, because time capsules are always uh, a media event when when they're opened, so that's that's one thing you can do for us. So stick that stick that address. You know, it, it doesn't take up much space right in that time capsule, and that would be great. All right, thanks so much, and enjoy the episode. Welcome, on script super fans. Today I have with me AJ Culp. Let me introduce her to you. AJ Culp is a comedic actress known for her work in Drunk History Christmas, Steve D, Funny or Dies, Presents Girl Scouts, and I Kid with Brad Garrett and Jackson and Faust Street Tough. I did not know that about your career. Uh, it's really impressive that a scholar would have that kind of uh, Hollywood background. AJ, welcome to OnScript. Thank you, Drew. I did not know about that background either, but now it sounds far more interesting. So I was Googling you for an introduction, and I Googled A.J. Culp with dots after the A and the J, and the first thing that came up was this actress. And I thought, how is that possible that somebody with such a unique name would happen to have a doppelganger uh, in Hollywood? But A.J. Culp, who's with me today, is actually a lecturer in Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Malion Theological College. It's an affiliation institute of the Australian College of Theology, and he's published two books so far, Invited to Know God, the Book of Deuteronomy, and Memoir of Moses, the Literary Creation of Covenantal Memory in Deuteronomy. That's the one we're going to be talking about today. Welcome again, the correct AJ. Thank you. Yes. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm going to disappoint now that I'm not a comedic actress who deals with uh, drunk skits. Well, I wanted to hear all about your time at Funny or Die, and especially meeting Brad Garrett. Ooh. You know, um, so uh, you have this book on memory theory that conjoins memory theory with what's going on in the Book of Deuteronomy, and I wonder—it's um, an inter- interdisciplinary endeavor, uh, and I believe this is um, some rewriting and, and uh, extension of your dissertation work. Uh, and so, I always wonder what causes somebody to commit academic kamikaze uh, work like this by doing interdisciplinary work in their PhD, as, as I did as well. Yeah, um, a series of poor decisions, um, essentially. <laughs> um, listen, I, you know, it's one of those funny stories where I was finishing up my master's thesis at uh, Denver Seminary. I was studying um, basically, um, you know, uh, narrative ethics in the Book of Judges. And, uh, and actually, um, that was my first book, uh, so I have three out, but that was a while ago. Oh, I didn't catch that one. I'm so yeah, sorry. No, no worries. Um, but um, it's so it's um, 
Yeah. So basically, I was finishing up this work on looking at the book of Judges and how we understand uh, all these complex, complicated narratives uh, ethically in the Old Testament. And um, so for a bit of light work, when I would go home to our apartment at night, I would I would read fiction. And uh, and one of my old favorites is the Chronicles of Narnia. And so I came again to the silver chair. Um, and it struck me, though, suddenly that one of the opening scenes deals with memory. Um, and, you know, Aslan's commanding, um, you know, the kids to remember, to remember once they get into the land of, of Narnia. And, this, and, I, and I just realized that it was echoing the Bible. Um, and so <laughs> I didn't know where, though. So I went in search of where. And uh, I found out that it was in Deuteronomy. And so I just was fascinated. And I assumed it would be a bit of uh, poking around for an hour or two in the library um, to figure out essentially just how uh, Lewis's use of memory here, um, you know, compared, contrasted to the, you know, the views of scholarship on Deuteronomy. And what I went and found was virtually nothing, though, um, that scholars were, were doing work on memory, um, but in a very different way than, than, than what I wanted to know. And so essentially, it was quite a naive kind of accidental, um, you know, uh, step into the wardrobe, so to speak. Um, and so I'd already been accepted to, to study a PhD under Gordon Wenham in England, and uh, under the actually the topic of, of narrative ethics in the Old Testament. Um, and so when I arrived, I said, hey, do you mind if I change my topic? And uh, and we talked about it, and he, he was quite excited about the new idea as well. And so uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the beginning of the story. Did he do that subtle British supervisor, like, oh, um, yes, this sounds like it would do better than the other topic you had, <laughs> which is like, I didn't like that one anyway. Yeah, well, no, he, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't know it at the time, but he probably said it was interesting, which of course in the, the classic British senses, you know, meant he just slammed my idea, you know, but. <laughs> That's suggestive. Yeah. My, my, one of my supervisors was Nathan McDonald. Uh, God bless Nathan McDonald for having to put up with me. Uh, but he used to always say, hmm, that's suggestive. <laughs> it took me a while to figure out what he meant by that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great. And um, yeah, so you said people weren't talking about memory the way you thought they should talk about memory. And, and of course, anybody who works in the Old Testament, you know, this is like a, a truism. If you want to, the word uh, to remember Zakah is uh, used, I think, only in Deuteronomy and Psalms, the, or only the Psalms outnumber the times that remember is used. But yeah, it's the book of remember and, uh, you know, pen shakach, the uh, uh, lest you forget, right? The, this antonym, right? So uh, what, what was it about memory in Deuteronomy that you saw that you didn't think other people saw? Yeah, yeah, good. So again, like Lewis uh, uses it for um, in the Silver Share, uh, every, everything in Deuteronomy is pinned on memory. That the whole idea that if the people are going to go on living faithfully before the Lord, they will remember. And if they forget, they won't. And so the entirety of the uh, the destiny of the covenant people is hung on memory in Deuteronomy. And so, uh, you know, I just, and, and, and as you just said, too, one of the key distinctives of it among all the other books, even the ones like the Psalms that use it more, um, is that it commands it. it. It doesn't just say, hey, this is, this is important or this is a good idea. It says, this is your single <laughs> um, thing that will determine whether you are faithful or not. And so I just went in search of, uh, you know, well, how, how does it seek to uh, cultivate this memory in the people? Because surely if it's commanding and it's so important, then it wants to actually do more than just, you know, say you should do this. It's trying to cultivate in the people. Um, and so, again, and that was the surprise for me is that um, it, I, almost nobody was looking at that in any depth. And so that's, yeah, that's what I did. Um, I'm going to go off script from my questions here for a second. Um Oh, no. Yes, you say well done. Well done. Um, I, <laughs> I wish the uh, be, because it was one of the things that struck me later in the book is you explored joy a little bit and the command to be joyful. And I had never in my life thought of it. And I thought this has a lot of implications for New Testament theology as well. That joy is connected to properly remembering uh, their past covenants and actions of, of God on their behalf. Um and so there's this almost this command, this uh, just of thrust to have joy, but it's but joy in this sense is because we know what God has done for us, what He's doing for us, and what He will do for us. Is it, is that right? Is that a good read on you, or am I messing? Yeah, up? no, that's that's right. Um, and, and just to back up a little bit, one of the interesting things I found in kind of this uh, memory research and neural research is that um, there's some studies that suggest that simply telling people to be joyful actually helps them uh, take an uptick in joy. Just just the 
the very idea of saying, hey, you should be more joyful actually helps, which again, I found very surprising, but, <laughs> but, um, well, if you've had a mopey teenager <laughs> and you can get them to do this, it does actually work maybe temporarily, but it yeah, works. well, that's good to know. I'm not quite at that stage with my kids. Um, but, uh, yeah, but yeah, so essentially you're right. Um, so from my reading of the festive calendar in Deuteronomy, what we have is, um, we essentially have the, you know, the first, the Passover and leavened bread, which, um, you know, looks at kind of the, the, the suffering in Egypt, and it, it actually intentionally tries to dwell on that so that when it gets to the, the other two major feasts of weeks and booths, that it's that it's actually trying to, like you're saying, it's trying to take them on a journey from uh, misery or bitterness into joy um, whenever, it, you know, whenever they celebrate these feasts. And so very much so that I think the, the idea is that uh, these feasts that celebrate in the land that, that the Lord has promised um, is to be a celebration of joy. Yeah. And I, and I, I, you know, these interviews, we try to ride the line of, um, you know, really examining the, the thesis, uh, uh, with the author, but then not trying to steal all your thunder. Cause I want people to read this book because I think the implications honestly for pastoral ministry are ripe for the picking here. Um, again, no pun intended. Uh, but that joy festival cycle, sorrow to joy, I thought was uh, really interesting. Um, okay, that said, uh, let's just talk about what memory is. And you uh, start out with the idea that memory is social um, and that we can extend our memories out in various ways. And, and, and I think you cite Andy Clark. I love Andy Clark's work. Um, but the idea of the extended mind, uh, and you seem to make analogies about extending memory in such ways. So why is memory social? Because we tend to only think of, I, I remember something. I remember when that happened. Uh, so why is it fundamentally social? Yeah, good. Uh, so, you know, Maurice Albox was uh, one of the, you know, kind of the first, I, I, well, the first that we attribute usually to this idea of collective memory. Um, and what he pointed out is simply that um, basically we, we hold the memories in our brain, so to speak, but all of them are conditioned at the very least by our experiences with other people. And they are received essentially from other people in a lot of ways as well, you know, from our family, from our communities, from our religion. Um, and so before, before a memory ever enters our mind, um, it, it is socially conditioned, right? And so that's, again, I, this is one of the most fascinating things early on is like, it just makes total sense, doesn't it? Um, is that no memories really belong to us, so to speak. Yeah. So e even the way that the memory is remembered, um, and again, I, you know, I think of the Gospels and the eyewitness, uh, the Marcus Bachmuller's work and uh, Richard Bachmuller's work, the, uh, the idea how it's, it goes in and socially contextualized and it, and it gets reified and repeated also within that uh, society, which is obviously what Deuteronomy is going to work out quite a bit. What about that extending our memory out, I guess, or extending our memory into the community? Yeah, good, good. So um, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... Um, there's been a variety of talk over the years about what is a site of memory, you know, that is, where is memory stored? And, um, and, and as I try to develop in the book, um, this is actually a fairly complicated and vexed question um, because, you know, you take the idea of commemoration, right? Like a commemorative coin. Um, and, and I began to wonder though, well, in what way is this commemorative? And in some ways, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I hate to say this, but a commemorative coin in some ways is not commemorative, right? Because um, it has something on there, but it actually, it's never involved in a, a performative, intentional, uh, programmatic process. Um, it's, it just kind of sits there. And so it seems to me that for, for, um, for something to be extended in the community, it needs to actually meet those, those three things. And that is, it needs to be intentional, performative, and programmatic. Um, and in this way, essentially memory basically gets distributed across a number of things across our communities. Um, and they, like you said, they get rehearsed and repeated and, and reified um, and, and in some ways take on lives of their own uh, within the community through this process. Yeah. That's actually one of the parts of the book. I have marks all over this book, but uh, that's one of the ones I would want to push back on. And, and I wonder, I want to throw something past you and see how it sounds to you because in a book I wrote, <laughs> <laughs> I, I happen to argue that the the stones on the side of the, the Jordan River in Joshua actually do function in some way like a commemorative, commemorative sorry commemorative coin. Um, 
in that, except for maybe it's different in this sense, uh, is that there seems to be uh, a presumed pilgrimage uh, to these stones. And then in the days to come, when your sons ask you, and specifically, what do these stones mean? And then what do these stones mean to you or y'all uh, in that context, I think. Um, and it's it's very Passover-like asking you to interpret the meaning of this thing that's just sitting there. Um, but but there's a presumed encounter with the thing. And maybe that's where the difference between a commemorative coin and, and the stones is there's a presumed pilgrimage and encounter that you would pass by these stones on your pilgrimage routes or something like that. Is that... Does that ring true to you, or do you have a hesitation with that? No, I, I think you're actually absolutely right. I think, um, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Is that um, for me? Um, yeah, in Deuteronomy, so I had to try to figure out essentially um, what was part of Deuteronomy's program, right, and what wasn't. And and as I think I, I said towards the end of that chapter, and in trying to work through these questions. Um, so there's memory happens through all kinds of mechanisms, and a lot of those are not intentional, um, and those and those are no less real uh, in, in the lives of people and communities. It's just that I can't, uh, as a person looking at Deuteronomy's memory program, I can't really, how do I say, use those as a barometer for what it's trying to do. Um, but you're right. I mean, if if there's a program involved elsewhere in the text, or if we if we uh, archaeologically, or again in Joshua or whatever come across something that says, oh, no, it actually, it, it does involve performance and, and program and intentionality. Well, I, I think it's absolutely true. Um, but yeah, for me, again, for me, I was just trying to, yeah, demarcate what, what I was and wasn't including, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Uh, everybody understands that. Um, yeah, I think I, uh, at many points when I was reading you, I was thinking, as we said earlier, Be- Bezel van der Kolk's "The Body Keeps the Score," and, and that even that unintentional memory in the community is, you know, he argues that trauma basically gets inscribed into the body and it has to be. He would, I don't think he says ritually worked out. That's what I would say, but it has to be worked out in some ways or processed uh, through the body as well. It can't just be processed by the mind or the soul, as he would say. Um, and so if trauma can be inscribed into individual bodies and the community as well, then obviously so can improper memories and proper memories. And so is this the, is this the standard line in academia? It's, it's not a matter of whether you're going to have a community memory. It's like how, how good and what its shape is going to be. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, coming back to that, the uniqueness of the command then to create create memory. Um, why why is that a unique uh, command? And then um, how do they carry out this task in Deuteronomy? As far as you see it, you have kind of five five schedules upon which they carry out this task. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So sorry. Help me out though. So why is it unique? Um, yeah. Why why is it why is the command to create memory unique? Or in what way is that unique? Okay, yeah. Um, or is it unique? Do you not see it as that? Uh, do you see it as just carrying out some other plan? No, yeah. So, I mean, well, uh, uh, scripturally speaking, it's unique because it's the only place that we find this command um, seemingly amongst a program, a larger, uh, you know, intentional program to carry out these things, right? And the way in which I see, the, 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 I, I label what I call three primary vectors of memory um, in Deuteronomy. And those are song, story, and ritual. Um, and so, I mean, not necessarily in that order. It's just it sounds better if you say them in that order. So, you know, uh, I'm a former English literature major, so I have to say things in the right order, right? Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, so essentially, though, so it, the first, I think, is a story. And then we find that in, in Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, you know, the classic, you know, which, which of course, Jews still today, you know, practice. And that is when your son comes to you and asks you know, what are the meaning of these things? You are to tell them. And of course, it's a story, but it's an intentional uh, program story. Um, and, that, and that story is also includes what I call habitus or just these habits of, you know, the daily, you know, when you rise and when you lie down and when you walk along your way. Um, and so, so we find essentially there a kind of a domestic uh, storytelling technique. And then in the, in the more communal way, outside of the domestic sphere, we find in, in chapter 16 in Deuteronomy, we find the rituals. And as we just mentioned, um, I, I see there a movement essentially, uh, essentially, well, it's, it's a, a snapshot across the year of Israel's life, moving from, um, from Egypt, you know, the misery in Egypt or the sorrow in Egypt to the joy in the land. 
And so it's, um, and that's not, that's not original with me, of course, others like Peter Altman and others have said this. Um, but so essentially, again, so you have this communal practice of, of the kind of the in miniature of Israel's journey um, from slavery to redemption. And then finally, we, we have the, uh, the song of Moses. Um, and again, it's, it's, Somewhat unclear, but I, I take that for a variety of reasons to mean uh, or to be practiced essentially in the domestic sphere as well. Um, and so apparently, perhaps alongside the storytelling um, memory vector, we have uh, parents teaching their children this song. Um, and so that's kind of the the bird's eye view overview of the three vectors that I, I see in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah. Um, I wonder, um, just to be completely crass, I think... Most people listening are going to say, "Well, yeah, that that sounds obvious." Like, how, I mean, maybe not the um, the sorrow to joy uh, part, but yeah, they're commanded to tell the story. They're commanded these. I, I think anybody who's read Deuteronomy is going to say, "Like, yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense." But you're doing quite a bit more uh, with this idea of memory vector, uh, and and also the importance, I guess, of storing the uh, the memories diversely uh, in the community. I guess. Um, do we need memory theory to, to do what you're trying to do here? Or what, what advantage do we get by thinking about it through memory theory? Yeah. Or through this particular memory No, that's, that's a good question. I think, you know, I think well, I'll go back to what I think is one of the more fascinating uh, things I stumbled on and one of the more, I think, unique contributions of the work that I ended up doing. Um, but um, so one of the interesting questions, certainly not just among biblical scholars, but among uh, memory theorists is, how do um, individual, or no, vice versa, how do social memories become individual memories? Uh, or to say it the other way, how do we um, come to see ourselves as individuals, as, as members of a community? Um, and, and what this seems to require is, again, it seems like common sense, but it's incredibly complicated. So we, we have to, at some point, acquire defining memories from our communities, whether it's religious or socially otherwise, um, but we have to de- we have to acquire these defining memories um, that we never experienced for ourselves, right? That we there's no way we could have experienced something three thousand years ago. But we have to, in some ways, come to see ourselves um, as as uh, participants in, in some sense in these events, or or as at least at the very least as co heirs of the events, so to speak. So the question is, how does that happen? And uh, basically, what I try to develop is this whole idea of how that happens and 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 why I think Deuteronomy actually reflects, um, you know, a kind of a native impulse to to do this. Um, and one of the unique things I came across was this this whole idea of how how visual um, features in memory um, actually are the kind of this magic bridge between uh, the community and the individual. Um, yeah, and so and I and also the the emotional. Um that you have to be emotionally present in the memory as well, that that's part of the memory storage. Mm. No, that's right. That's right. Um, and, so, and so this is part of the things as well that I, I stumbled across is that um, I came to believe in the process that what we find in Deuteronomy uh, is it's often referred to as kind of an educational text, but I think it's a lot less educational than mnemonic. I, I think it's um, better described as anamnesis, that is religious remembering, than it is as, as pedagogy or education. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is again, um, well, I mean, listen, there's a huge, there's a huge amount of discussion on what the difference is between education and memory. Um, but in this case, I think, again, there's a sense of participation, um, that, that memory facilitates that we, we don't get through anything else. Um, and I think I referenced at one point, the, the book, one of the books that kind of actually very, um, uh, happy accidentally, um, helped me along the way. And that is remembering Satan. I don't know if you remember this, my reference to this book. Um, but so for those who don't know, there's, um, back in the 1980s and nineties, there's a spate of things, um, across the U S that are now known as essentially false memory syndrome. And essentially what we had is people, um, remembering things quite, quite vividly that actually by, it seems never actually happened to them. Um, and one man in Olympia, Washington, an upstanding member of the community, a Christian, ended up con- uh, confessing to horrible, horrible crimes. Um, the rape of his children, a ritual murder of infants um, that that appears to have never have happened. But he believed he actually did these things, which is incredible. 
Um, and again, the what what scholars eventually untangled is that it seems that it was a it was a fault in memory because he was he was um, rehearsing these memories in such a way with a therapist um, that that his imagination uh, began to conflate these into something that that it appeared in his mind to be actually a real memory. And so all that essentially to say um, that I think in Deuteronomy, we find these very strange features for a book like Deuteronomy. Um, we find on the one hand, we find the, um, Moses telling the people right away, okay, listen, you are not the Exodus generation. They're, you know, they're dead and gone. They're, they're dead and gone. They're dead and gone. You're not them. But then for the rest of the book, he says, now you know these things because you experienced them yourselves. You, so you need to remember these things you experienced yourselves over and over and over. So the question, of course, is why does he do that, right? Why does he do that? And then those, um, those commands are, are almost always followed by incredibly lucid visual recollections of things, um, which, is, which is unique in the biblical narrative for a number of reasons. It's unique, firstly, because, uh, of course, biblical narrative is incredibly sparse and reserved in its descriptions. But then Deuteronomy itself is, is one of the most aniconic or anti-imagistic books in the Old Testament. So again, we come to this question of why is he doing that? And um, and again, for me, what I came to is I think I think Deuteronomy, and again, is this kind of native instinct, is trying to bridge um, these historic events that each new generation needs to come to see themselves as, in some sense, and uh, and you know through memory essentially. And so it's what it's doing is it's creating this kind of uh, porthole, or as I call it, at the end of the book, a wrinkle in time. Um, through which each new generation can come to see themselves in some sense as as uh, pseudo participants in the original events. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's so good. And there's uh, this is probably one of my favorite parts of the book um, where you're dealing with identity. Um, and and, it, and even today, I, I wonder if Christianity lacks some of this aspect, at least modern Christianity, it's individualism, um, where we don't identify with other Christians as much. My Jewish friends are constantly haranguing me saying, you know, if a Jew is persecuted somewhere in the world, we all feel it. I hear about Christians being persecuted, and I never hear Christians saying anything about it. They just kind of go, eh, well, you know, whatever. I said, well, it's more complicated than that. But yeah, you're right. There is something, and, and uh, there almost isn't this shared memory in, in the same way, even though obviously we have good reasons from the Gospels to believe that we should have this exact same kind of uh, memory function going on. If you'll permit me a moment to tell a story, because I think it highlights a lot of what, what you're talking about. Uh, my mother died recently of uh, Alzheimer's. And so the, obviously, you know, when your own parent uh, goes through through early onset dementia and then Alzheimer's, you think a lot about memory. And then, of course, you think a lot about your own memory and whether you're just growing older and forgetting things or if something worse is over the horizon. But what was interesting about my mother is uh, this, how her narrative shaped her identity. Um, and when she lost that narrative, uh, she became a slightly different person. So her, her narrative was that she was a, a childhood abuse survivor. Um, and she would say that if she was here today, she would talk very open, more openly than you would probably be comfortable with, uh, if she was here. Um, I mean, and the, the joke was in the family is if, if you met her for in, within 10 minutes, you would know that she was a childhood abuse survivor. Right. And so she was tended to be connected to p other people who were childhood abuse survivors. She, she went to groups and that's how she identified herself. Um, in the later stages, this last year or two, she, for some reason or another, I'd say God's mercy, had no recollection of her abuse anymore. It's completely gone. Uh, and she became a different person, a delightful person. Uh, you know, there was, and everybody in the family was talking about it, how she is just not defined by this anymore. And it was, it, it, it was at that point how it became obvious to all of us how defining, rehearsing that memory constantly with everybody she met and a lot of her friend groups how that really defined uh, her identity uh, in the world. Uh, and in some ways, in a harmful way, I, you know, in some ways I'd have to say it probably wasn't helpful, some of the ways she was rehearsing that memory. So as I was reading this part of the book, that that was the part that jumped out to me like, oh, yes, I, I've, and, it may, and then, of course, after going through that experience, I was thinking to myself, well, what narratives am I telling myself that I need to, you know, dump and get over? Because I definitely have my own stories about myself as well. So, yes, I found that therapeutically very helpful. This is this is what I'm saying. This is a monograph, but there's all kinds of gems in here for pastoral ministry and, and life. Um, 
And, and actually, as it so happens, my next question was going to be on this line. You, you talked about how healthy memory is letting go uh, and in some cases destroying the memory of something, right? Um, and of course, this popped up all kinds of questions with me about um, the current debates on destroying art uh, and the public square because of uh, the memories it's associated with, right? So what 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 do you mean by that healthy memory is letting go? Um, and, and, uh, and in the case of Deuteronomy, uh, why is destroying certain memory memory vectors important? Yeah, no, that's a great question as well. Um, so, yeah, a, cu a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, a really accessible, popular book on this question is by Miroslav Wolf, The End of Memory. Um, and, and he actually talks about this, how memory is calibrated in such a way that if we continue to remember uh, oppression uh, or different kinds of things, and we, we hold people, especially later generations of people accountable for that, um, that it becomes its own form of oppression eventually, which I think is a profound idea. Um, but, but yeah, so I mean, there's, there's things that need to be held onto and there's things that need to be let go. And even uh, the work of Adrienne Levine, um, she looks at the, the book of Numbers and actually, essentially, if I read her correctly, she says, essentially, that's what Numbers says about um, Israel's mis misremembering is that they remember, you know, the, they, they essentially misremember Egypt, right? They remember the, <laughs> the leeks and the onions and the, the fish or whatever. And, and, um, and of course, that, that, that in fact, is be, that, that poisons them um, because they're actually misremembering and they're not letting go or, or to say it the other way, they're not letting go of things. Um, but, but so, yeah, so as you're saying as well, um, this is true in Deuteronomy as well. And I think, um, there's, there's, um, you know, there's things that Deuteronomy, um, you know, wants people to remember and there's things that it wants them to, to not remember, or in the, some ways, I mean, part of the whole, uh, commands in Deuteronomy is when they come into the land to, yeah, to wipe out, um, you know, like idols and icons and religious sites and this stuff. And, um, you know, and part of it's just the way ancient Near East people did stuff, right? But but part of it's actually very intentional to Deuteronomy because, um, as as you just talked about, like as well, like there's there are sites of memory, um, and, and and there's an importance that needs to be or to to essentially removing these from from sight, and so Deuteronomy balances its own memory program with uh, removing some of those things from sites as well. Yeah. Do you do you want to give us a hot take on what you think about statues being taken down in the United States? Oh boy. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> holy smokes. Uh, <laughs> what? I did, if you had a hot no, take well, or a cold take, it would be a cold take in this case. You've thought about it. Yeah. Well, I will say this. I will say this. Um, I, I, re, a while back, actually, before all the, the recent upheaval, um, um, another Australian Old Testament scholar by the name of Rachel Gilmore, um, she wrote something on, um, on this and said basically, um, don't remove the, you know, the thing, change the narrative. And I, and I think that's actually true. I think that's tr a lot of what Deuteronomy has to say as well. It's not just about removing stuff. It's actually about changing the narrative, right? Or as you just mentioned, um, remembering rightly. Yeah, actually, there's a there's a proposal. We're doing a series in my other podcast on art, artist and How many podcasts do you and, have? Uh, as many as I need. That's, <laughs> that's it, you know. The average amount for a 46-year-old man. Uh, yeah, well, it seems um, so. The, uh, but... Someone had pointed me to this article where they had written uh, on a Robert E. Lee statue, don't take it down, uh, but surround it with a cylinder that has portholes into it and a big opening and then on the inside of the cylinder. So he, he basically proposed a piece of counter art to guide your experience with the original piece of art. And on the inside, you know, kind of have Civil War all the way up to Civil Rights uh, pieces of art and quotes and things that that uh, re restructure the narrative, as you said. Yeah, so. Uh, well, I think that's right. I think it's exactly it. I mean, because I actually, man, you got to be careful because you can't say anything nowadays um, without being, you know, misrepresented, misunderstood. But I, I genuinely think that m taking away the statue in many cases is more dangerous than leaving it there and surrounding it with the proper narrative. Um, I just, I really do. But anyways, so. But I live in Australia, so I can say those things, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and grace to um, the kind of the reactions of centuries of problems. So, um, okay, well, I want to switch over to something more lighthearted here. We're going to do a speed round. Um, I don't know what happened to all my files, but they, they went missing. So I, I uh, actually had to cobble together a speed round from one that Matt Lynch sent me a long time ago. So 
you are getting an inferior speed round. I just want to warn you. Right I'm getting now, someone okay? else's speed round. Uh, it's it's cobbled. It's it's cobbled. It's a Frankenstein of speed round. Can I give you someone else's answers? <laughs> if you remember them, yes. <laughs> you you cannot say John Barclay's book. Okay. Uh, okay. One, yeah, that one's on okay. the table. Okay. All right. Well, first and foremost, uh, what is the first and most memorable lyric to Barbara Streisand's 1974 classic, The Way We Were? I have no idea. Uh, the correct answer was memories. Uh, you know, memories wow, that's, like the ones. I, I feel like I should. Do you know I, the no, song? No, I don't. Clearly. Clearly. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That might be a gen. How old are you? Uh, I am forty-two years young. Oh no, we're 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 in the same generation. Mm. I okay. I'm sorry. I thought we were thought we were vibing, but I don't know what's no. happening here. All right, let's keep let's press on. Where would you rather be? Uh, the outback, a beach, a living room, or at an actual outback steakhouse? Oh, at an actual outback steakhouse, no question. <laughs> <laughs> no question. Any particular one? One in one in Wisconsin? Uh, I, I, I don't know if they are in Wisconsin. John Frankie and I used to enjoy going to them uh, when we were in Montana together. Um, I have fond memories of that. So yeah. How hats? They're in Montana. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Absolutely. Okay. Um, you're familiar with the the genre of a knock knock joke. <laughs> I am familiar with that. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So knock knock. Uh, who's there? I eat mop. I eat mop. Who? That's, that's I, I knew that's when it was happening, but I felt like I needed to be a good guy and play along. So uh, we appreciate yeah. it. We had, we had on script are thankful for your work, both as a scholar and playing along with a feces generated. Well, I, I have young children, so this is right in my wheelhouse. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You can you can reuse. Oh, I'm definitely going to reuse it today. I'll think they'll think I'm a hero. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I don't know if it's Australian British picks this up, but uh, poo is, is it takes on a whole new connotation in British English than it does in American mm. English. So I, I, I like their sense of poo. <laughs> All right. Continuing on. Uh, what biblical or theological work has had the greatest impact on you as a thinker? Yeah. Listen, these questions always, I don't know what to say, uh, but I will, I will say this. Recently, again, I was just reflecting on um, um, Abraham Heschel's work. Uh, man, Abraham Heschel's work ha has and continues to just, I, I honestly find it stunning. I really do. It's, it's an incredible, incredible um, collection of work that he's done. And I just, am, I continue to be thankful for it. I really am. We uh, interviewed his daughter on our oh, yeah. uh, a while back. Yeah. Um, okay. What was one of your favorite works of fiction? You're not allowed to say anything by C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite works of fiction, well, speaking of genres, what genre are we talking about? I'm an English literature major. I have, you know, I have multitudes at my oh, fingertips. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, say, um, let's say dystopian or near future sad. Yeah, okay. So that's one thing I don't really read much about. Um, but um, <laughs> how, how about uh, American literature? Yeah. Let's okay, I'll one. say this. I cut my teeth on Ernest Hemingway, and, <clears throat> and I don't, think, ah, I don't yeah. think Ernest Hemingway was the most uh, hopeful writer. Um, but I, I think Ernest Hemingway was was one of the most beautiful writers, and I think he rewrote "For Whom the Bell Tolls" like thirty five times, and so he cared he cared mm. about language and getting it right. And I've and I've really always respected that. Yeah, I've I've just recently read. I haven't read any of those. I've only read um, "Farewell to Arms" and "The Sun Also Rises," which were so both great. Books. Yeah, yeah. So I, th in my humble opinion. In, Eng in the English language, the two best openings to, to novels ever are A Farewell to Arms, first paragraph or two, and uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, the first paragraph. Just hmm. beautiful writing. All right. Incredible. Going to put that one on the list. All right. Um, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this job right now? Uh, well, I'd be better paid. I don't know what I'd be doing, though. Um, but um, <laughs> better treated, better paid. No, okay, this is recorded, right? Um yeah, so let's see here. Well, uh, so I grew up in rural Wisconsin. Um, you know, uh, my my family, my extended family were largely farmers or tradesmen. Um, and I, I grew up hunting and fishing and playing sports. And I always kind of assumed that I would just stay in rural Wisconsin and, and maybe be a hunting or fishing guide, to be perfectly honest. Um, so this this journey that I'm on, I have to admit, has been a bit of a, an unexpected journey to, to you know, play off the Hobbit. 
Well, you sure do like your cliche Christian literature. I'll tell well, you that. You know, that's what, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. Well, and I'm also trying to reconcile a previous answer. So a hunting or fishing guide, and when given the choice of Outback Beach or Outback Steakhouse, you chose Outback Steakhouse. So, From the, but Wisconsin woods are a total. You don't need to hunt in Wisconsin. Um, when I was in the reserves, we used to go up there for annual yes. training. And I swear there were deer taking naps alongside every road I ever drove in Wisconsin. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, let's... What do they call them? Dirt naps? Is that what they call them? Yeah. I think that's a mafia term, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, so that's our, oh, I was going to ask you, what did your family farm? What was was there any particular crop or yeah? Well, style uh, of in, in southern Wisconsin, it was largely um, dairy farms, and um, yeah. So my mom, oh, okay. my mom, she um, she unfortunately died young, but she grew up on a, a dairy farm and walked her brothers and sisters across the fields and river to uh, to a small schoolhouse uh, next to a little church and she's actually buried there as well so right on the edge of the farm where she wow. grew up so and that's where I grew up hunting and fishing and, and helping you know like you know make hay and all that stuff so yeah so that's kind of that was my life yeah wow. it was a good life okay. a really good life I'm glad I asked that yeah. question um who do you avoid at the Society of Biblical Literature annual apart from you yes okay I already knew that was coming. Yeah. Um, who do shields were who up? Do I, <laughs> shields were up. Who do I avoid? Um, well, I won't say who. I will say what. Um, and that I try to avoid any kind of serious scholarly activity as much as I can at those. Uh, no. Um, yeah. Well, listen. I will. I'll tell you this. Um, I will. I don't know who I avoid, but um, you know, we kind of have a, a small posse of uh, Dan Lowry and Dave Beldman and I. And um, we always room together and so um, get into trouble and stuff. And so those guys, we did PhDs together under Gordon Wenham. And, and uh, so we always try to connect and, and, you know, and room together and all that stuff. And so I don't think we've ever done anything, you know, gotten into too big of trouble. But we like to be a little rowdy, you know. Well, yeah, David is just this boisterous Canadian. And uh, actually, Dan is a boisterous Texan. Right? We, so. we joke because um, when we were in England, um, Lowry, as we like to call him, uh, he, uh, people are like, you know, because we, we spent most of our time trying to like live down American stereotypes in England. And, and then Lowry right, would walk right. into the room. Not possible with And Lowry. he'd walk into the room and be like, hey, you guys. And I was, and everyone, yeah. hey, yeah. and everyone would go, so it is true. I'm like, okay, so yeah. it is true with Dan. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Just because he talks like that and he is wearing white tennis <laughs> shoes and, and his teeth are perfectly straight. Uh, yes. So uh, good. So. Excellent. Uh, well, I was going to ask what's something interesting about you that we wouldn't learn from your CV or books, but um, what you got anything else for us in hiding in, in the background of well, AJ Copeland besides your actress? Yeah, part? besides, gosh, that, that is way interesting. Now I'm going to use that for something. Yeah. Um, what was that? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a fly fisherman. I tie my own flies, which um, some people find interesting. Um, some people, uh, some of my students think it's so embarrassing that they want to try to blackmail me with it, which I'm not embarrassed about. But um, so, yeah, so I tie my own flies and fly fish and all that stuff. And so, yeah, if I were independently wealthy, there, I'd live in the Rockies and fly fish, I think. Okay. Is there uh, good fly fishing in Australia? There is. There is. Um, Tasmania. In Brisbane, yeah, I guess. T Tasmania yeah. um, is, is great. Um and of course, New Zealand is just a little hop over, and that's the best in the world, really. But um, but up here, there's saltwater as well, and um, it's, which is a whole different ball game. You know, you got you got it big is. fish. Everything can everything kill you. Everything can yeah. kill you, and tries to. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, since you're coming out of Deuteronomy, uh, what do you find most troubling or challenging uh, about the Bible? That can be as a scholar, as a human, whatever you like. Yeah. Um, that is a great question. Um, I, I would say this. Um, for me, I think the, the most challenging thing about not just the Bible, but the biblical um, faith and the lived experience uh, as a Christian, I think is the hiddenness of God. And I think it's, it's, it's one of the most interesting and um, difficult problems of human existence. I, I find it to be. And I, and I think the Bible, I think, deals with this um, as well, but I, I don't think it makes it any less difficult. Hmm. 
And you mean the phenomenological experience of the hiddenness of God? That's right. The the the, the whole um, experience of it. That's right. Uh, but but again, yeah. I, I think the the Bible is not unaware of this stuff, and so um, yeah. it's just trying to understand what it has to say about it and, and reconciling that with our own experience. One of my favorite questions in the Hebrew Bible is, where are all of these signs and wonders that we've yeah. heard about from our parents? Yeah, yeah Gideon. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have to remind my students uh, because it, it rolls off their tongue so easily without even thinking about it. And it probably did for me at one point. Um, you know, why Why don't I see all these miracles and wonders mm-hmm. today? And I'm like, wait, why do you think people in Scripture saw miracles? I mean, it's, it's you know, less than one half of one percent of people in the text would have um, reported something like this. So, mm. yeah, there is there is kind of a natural history of hiddenness in the biblical text, and there's only some discussion of it, I guess. No, that's and that's a great point. I mean, I I don't think I appreciated this fully until I began to study other sections. Like I'm currently teaching a class on first and second Kings and this whole idea of cl- the clustering of miracles as as some. And I think it's exactly right. You look at what you know the the whole of the thousands of years that it covers, and you know there's really just a couple of little fits and spurts, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Intense moments. Yeah, clusters is probably a a good term for that. um, Any product or service that you love so much that you'd happily be their spokesperson for free? Oh, any product or service? Yeah. Oh, that... Anything you're hopped up on? These these questions are recycled, but they're very good, I must say. Um, Yeah, that's why I'm recycling. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Yeah, you got to give me a second here. Um, I would say... Any products? Um, oh, listen again. Like this is going to mean something to about one or two people that probably listen to this podcast, um, which probably like my book as well. Anyways, but um, so um, let's say uh, Scott fly rods out of uh, Colorado. Uh, I think are a phenomenal fly rod, and I would sign up to that, especially if they gave me free gear. Yeah. I actually heard that those fly rods are total trash. Oh, that's just the now, word on now the I'm angry. Yeah. Now I'm angry. Now we're gonna have to cut this short. Um. Good, good spokesperson. <laughs> okay, um, going back into the book, you you have a chapter called "Sedimenting Memory," which I like that metaphor. Um, and I, you know, as I was reading, I began to ask myself this question, especially since you're citing um, Michael Karasik and. Um, some of the other people who have worked on cognition and thinking and he, the Hebrew Greek mind problem, um, Bowman and these guys. And I, and I kept thinking, what is the difference between remembering and thinking, or maybe remembering and conceptualizing, uh, in, in your mind, what's the difference between, or, or is there a difference? Are they two sides of the same coin? Yeah, that's a great question as well. I think this gets back to the core part of the education question. I think they're interrelated, um, but I think they are different. Um, and, uh, listen, I think I would say this, I think thinking in, in, in general is, is an exploration, um, right. It's an explorative exercise or you're trying to untangle. Whereas I think memory is a distilling or an organizing us, a meaning making exercise inherently. And I, and I would say, I think that's the the fundamental difference in my mind. I don't know if that's actually true, but you know. Well, it's helpful, at least, for thinking about the two. And, of course, we keep using the term think in, in defining what we're talking about here. But, yeah, that one is uh, remembering by its nature, you know, we're, if I can re- restate exactly what you just said, but <laughs> uh, by, by its nature, we're taking in more stuff than we can keep. Uh, and so you just have to organize and sift. And so remembering focuses on organizing sifting as both a community and then and then within individuals and in the material world of that community if i if i hear you correctly and thinking is something more looking forward projecting no that's absolutely right and i mean i think that's really important and i think maybe i should have said this before when you asked a similar question but it was um so i think everyone thinks um you know oh if if i could only remember more i would be better off um and and the whole thing there's a black mirror episode oh yes i still haven't watched i need to but um well, you got to be be careful which ones you okay. watch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so everyone thinks this. But of course, um, we now know from neuroscience in cases of people through various, um, whether it's injuries or, or issues, that that what happens if you if you actually can't not remember? That is, if you remember everything, is actually it it it's bad. You, can, you it ruins you because you. Um, 
it torments you because and, and again it actually shows that the fundamental capacity of memory is distilling and organizing the key pieces um, because what it actually does is it, it, it you no longer are actually able to function because um, that that function is actually uh, essential to human existence to identity to decision making um, and it's just basically like um, you know an incredible amount of a thousand songs playing at one time you can't make sense of anything right uh, yeah that's good yeah I remember uh, it was this American life I think maybe had an episode where the, I actually don't remember it was something on NPR where they had a woman who basically remembered everything that happened to her since she was 12. And she talked about just how pain, you know, because things like uh, the death of her parents uh, never went away. And in the, in the, in the sense she hears people talking about how it eases over time, it hasn't eased at all. So the, what you talk about in the book, the emotive part of memory as well, she, she has to keep going through. Interestingly with my own mother, um, she kept forgetting she was divorced. She kept on forgetting why the divorce happened. She forgot that her mom had died. So like she had to keep uh, in some way reliving the traumas uh, of her own life because uh, she had to re in the reverse side had to come to know these things again. No, that's, that's right. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's really, really important to, to point out. Yeah. Okay. I am going to drag you into questions that only interest me at this point. Ooh, uh, sounds exciting. Yeah. Practical experience. So I admitted at one point on the interwebs that I don't believe daily Bible reading is for everybody in the world. Like certain people in certain situations, they shouldn't read it every day. They need to read big chunks, maybe intermittently or disruptively in some way. Um, and, 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 you know, we should think more cautiously about the ritual of biblical reading and uh, as I was reading through this, uh, the Sukkot seventh year ritual of reading the Torah aloud in public, um, that seems to get done maybe just sometimes. Uh, so it, it, what happened, you know, the Baptist people came after me <laughs> and I realized, if I can say it politely, I realized that a large constituency of Christians couldn't imagine a world where they didn't have their own personal copy of the Bible that they read every day. They couldn't imagine a good Christian life that consisted of that without that. Uh, and which may be sad because I thought, oh, you can't imagine a world uh, where of most Christians who've ever lived throughout history and most Israelites. Uh so I wonder, because most people have not have access to uh, scripture for daily reading, and you know, oh, oh, happy is the man who whose delight is in the Torah, and he and day and night he meditates on it. Right? You, I wondered as I was reading through uh, these last few chapters of your book, what is um, the the reading rituals and. How is the Torah shaped, I guess, when you can't read it, but every seven years, when you don't re have real literary access to it, but every year, every seven years, you know, something less than daily or weekly? Drew, this is a great question. Um, my goodness. Um, yeah, yeah I, I thought about this a lot as well. I mean, because first of all, as you said, I mean, really, the whole, uh, the whole idea of, of books and texts um, being being the possession of of individuals and you know sitting on our shelves like it's really a post printing press kind of thing really I mean uh, and so <laughs> yeah um, I suspect your students are, are shocked when you tell them those kind of things as mine are uh, <laughs> so yeah um, okay so the way I understand um, what Deuteronomy is doing with memory and and its relation to the text is you're right I mean. So the Feast of Tabernacles um, has the reading, uh, prescribes the reading once every seven years. Now, listen, most people that I know would assume that it happened more than that um, in, in various ways. But, but to get to your point, I think, um, I think what I see going on in the text of Deuteronomy is that um, there's, there's key parts of the, of the text that are being inscribed in the person through memorization and ritual, right? Um, or as you know, some people have talked about the whole um, difference between inscribed and incorporated memory. But again, that's nerd, nerd talk. But um, so essentially, I think the daily practices of of you know the the children uh, learning from their parents, you know, speaking these words, um, I think was was inscribing these key entry points into uh, the Torah. And, and I don't think it was all of the Torah, but I do think it was key parts such as the Shema, you know, the Hear Israel, um, and it also probably the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Um, and, and again, beyond that, what it was, I don't know. But I do think there are key parts that were inscribed in people 
Um, eventually, it would have been the Psalter as well. Um, and so I think it was more of a, of a culture of um, reciting and singing key parts rather than and reading, obviously, because people, most people couldn't read and didn't have text available to them. Um, and so it, in a lot of ways, I think it actually just bears witness again to common sense uh, today. You know, I mean, it's hard for us to memorize a verse of the Bible, right? Um, but but we can't for, we can't not forget a song that we heard when we were 15 years old, right? And so, like, I think when you you combine those two, you get very much what the ancient people did, and that is they set these things to music. Um, and so uh, that's that's my kind of down and dirty take on on how they actually textualize themselves. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you jumped to songs because that was where I kind of wanted to end is, a, is actually a discussion of the theology of, of songs and memory. Um, because it's, it is true. It's not only hard to forget, but, uh, having gone through the, the, the arc of Alzheimer's as well, is you realize even when somebody can't speak anymore, when they can't recognize their own children standing before them, you turn on a song from their childhood and all of a sudden they pipe up and start singing along to it. Um, and I'm told uh, by doctors that the reason for this is that song that has lyrics uh, embedded into it, so the lyrics go along directly with the music in some meaningful way, uh, which is most songs that we we like, um, that there's no one part of the brain, you know, there's not Wernicke's area or there's, there's not a specific spot where those are stored. They're actually distributed across uh, the entire brain or the, at least the across, across the temporal lobe. Uh, which basically means the the physical the physically deteriorating brain in Alzheimer's um, it's it's the most resistant to the physical deterioration um, because it's distributed widely and as I was reading your book that actually kept coming back to me because I thought it's not just one practice that's sedimenting memory into the lives in the community of Israel it's actually multiple practices that are hitting it from different angles uh, that you just discussed um, but then. I, I often, when I remind theologians that the only thing in the Torah that Israel is ever told to memorize was a song, and I'm like, and you ought to go read that song because it probably doesn't say what you think it would say. Um, uh, there, uh, even scholars, I find sometimes are, you know, maybe they knew it in the back of their mind, they just forgot about it. But why, what, what sense do you make of it as the song is the, the commanded uh, theology of Israel here? And I think you've kind of already given a partial answer to that, but I wonder if there's any, anything else you do with the fact that it's commanded to memorize this. No, great question. Um, yeah, first of all, I mean, it was really interesting. When I was finishing up my work on this section years ago during my PhD, I was sharing with my dad about some of the stuff about song. Um, because I think the cool thing about the work I did on memory theory was that it, it, it basically kind of tapped on these little doors that are common sense in our own experience and just opened this huge world to them. And one of them was the song one, um, where you kind of tap on this door and it opens and you go, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And and so he was just telling me how, um, on the power of song, he said just the week before at that time, he had um, found this like collection of old songs from his high school days. Okay. And so he's like, oh yeah. So he kind of began to listen to it and and he said he just basically had to end up like, you know, like putting it away or throwing it away. I forget what he said, um, because at first it was great. It was like a trip down memory lane. But with it came all the unwanted memories and emotions as well. And I thought that was fascinating. That it was so powerful that he actually was like, no, I'm not going to listen to these anymore because they're actually too much for me. Um, but, but yeah, so uh, the interesting thing about song, um, as you're talking about, especially with the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, um, and I say this in the book, but, you know, everyone talks about the Ten Commandments and this and that and, you know, all these other things. But, I mean, by far the most enduring song textually, um, as far as its, its textual presence after Deuteronomy, um, of, of all the memory vectors, um, in, in, you know, that I lay out in Deuteronomy, is the Song of Moses. I mean, it, 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 Dan Block, I think, is the person I cite, but others have said similar things. But I mean, this thing shows up everywhere in the Old Testament. It shows up in the, again in the New Testament. And apparently it's it's part of or one of the songs that the faithful will sing in the eschaton, according to the book of Revelation. Um, so, so again, you know, this this whole idea of, of the power of song in, in the ancient world must have been just so plainly obvious to these people um, that, you know, that they base things around it. Um, and even, I think, I, again, I quote, um, you know, uh, uh, the famous... Um, 
quote from the, the Scottish politician that Gordon Wenham also quotes. Um, but basically, he says something along the lines of, give me the songs of the people, and I care not who writes its laws. Give me the songs of the people, and I care not who writes its laws. Again, just, just, just referencing the power of song. And this is a politician that makes that quote, right? A guy who specializes in, in policy and lawmaking, right? <laughs> so, yeah, right. so I, I very much think that's... Sounds dangerously uh, close to Mein Kampf, you know, give me the textbooks and I'll rule Germany. Wow, Drew, you really brought that down, buddy. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or uh, is it Confucian in the Analects? I don't remember where. It's it's some, some East Asian proverb that says, um, you know, give me a boy until he's 12 and you can have him for the rest of your life, basically. Uh, the the the, pow, the power lever comes in this one special way. I think also song as a child, you know, having four teenagers um, now, most of whom have survived teenage. I got one still kind of stuck in the middle of the teen years, but um, it, you know, you, you know how being a parent causes you to relive your own childhood in many ways. Like, oh, it makes more so much more sense now that I'm looking at it from this angle. Um, yeah, seeing just how powerfully. Um, Movies and songs get embedded. And same thing with me. I have movies and songs that I love from my childhood that I listen to them now and I'm like, uh, they're not that good of a song, but it, it, or it's not that great of a movie, uh, like Karate Kid. I love that movie. Um, but, um, but it, it, there's some feeling that goes with it that ties me deeply to it. And I actually, in some ways, I long for that feeling about a song or a movie because I don't think I felt it in a decade or so. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it, you know, and I think of Deuteronomy and it's got it's got a, a pediatric focus on memory and community building and through song. And it's got all the elements uh, there. I'm wondering in the, uh, if you looked more contextually, like widely in the ancient Near Eastern literature, is there anything like this going on in Egypt or Mesopotamia? Um, as far as which part? Uh, well, the uh, the the use of memory technique in this way or, or, or commands to memorize and building memory into communities like you have in, in Deuteronomy. Because I think what you're doing is showing that basically the best of memory theory that we conceive of, as we conceive of it today, we're seeing all of those elements at work in Deuteronomy. And I'm going to guess when you look in other places, you're probably not going to see all of those elements working in coordination like you see in Deuteronomy. That would be my yeah, good. No, that's a great question. I mean, so uh, I don't know for sure, but that has always been my uh, my instinct as well, because you do. So, of course, Deuteronomy is, I mean, framed generally within the whole treaty tradition of the ancient Near East. Right. Um, and one of the most fascinating things, again, is um, this whole difference between, for example, the Hittite vassal treaties and the Assyrian vassal treaties and that. Um, again, to oversimplify, but these the Hittite seems to motivate their um, obedience to their treaties through um, recollecting kind of these uh, benevolence of a you know of the overlord, whereas the Assyrians like, hey, if you don't do this, I'm going to chop you and your children into small pieces and burn you. You know, it's a it's a different kind of motivation, right? <laughs> the the neo Assyrians are just really practical people. Yeah, they 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 know what they're about. I'll give them credit for that. You know what I mean? Like they, 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 <laughs> They've got a good narrative. They, they do, themselves. yeah. So, uh, but but um, but but so I do think. So in general, it fits within that. But but again, it's at that point that I think, again, in, in, in my limited knowledge, it's at that point that we find something that is totally unknown in the ancient world. And I think this I think we find support for this for someone who is a specialist in that area. And that is Jan Osman, who actually says in multiple different publications that we find nothing like this in the ancient world anywhere. And so, again, I mean, he, he would be the one to know. And Well, if Jan is saying it, yeah, then I would that's trust right, it. That's um, right. Uh, real talk. Uh, I was in a workshop with Jan Osman um, with like 12 people in Denmark. And uh, so I, I I was in the same little ho boutique hotel with him. And, and uh, in the morning, we were having breakfast together. And I said, Jan, do you, you you at all find it humorous that, you know, the top Egyptologists in the world, like two of, two of the really good Egyptologists, one's name is Osman and the other one is named Anus. Oh, my gosh. You and, did uh, it. Yep. <laughs> he did not find the humor in that. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah. you know, so, you, I, I think it's one of those things, right? Like, it's like, you know, there's things you keep in your head and there's things, but I, the thing I appreciate about you, Drew, is that you don't keep the things in your head, in your head. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, I don't have that I love filter. It. I it's, love it. Um, yeah. Some people don't. <laughs> Such as <laughs> a German Egyptologist. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, he's a very, very nice guy. And man, talk about a powerhouse 
thinker, reader, like, oh my goodness, he's ter- it's terrifying to be in the same room with him. Um, okay, one last question, and you probably know it's coming. So uh, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Yeah, this this is a good question. Um, I have to admit, I the thing that first comes to my mind is not a an academic discipline or a disciplinary practice, but more of a I would say a religious practice, um, and that is simply treating the Bible as a manual. Amen. Yeah. So, like, as so, hold yeah. on. Can you, let, let's make sure uh, we know what you mean by that. So, say more about that, please. Okay, but you already said amen, so I thought we were done. Um, but, anyways, uh, well, I, I retract my <laughs> amen and I withhold it. Until can I those hear be retracted. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, um, yeah. So, the thing that really struck me about this whole thing is that again. Uh, Deuteronomy is not trying to be an educational text where you learn about God and you you learn, you know, kind of like from an observer's or perspective, so to speak. It, it's trying to draw people into the divine experience, um, into the divine life, right? And so I think that that is, it led me, you know, <clears throat> back when I was doing my PhD, it's now led me on a journey of thinking about this in extensive ways. But um, I think the Bible is much more like what the Celtic Christianity called thin space um, than anything else. And as, and as you know, I've, I've used this in various uh, metaphors, but this whole idea of a wrinkle in time or a, a divine wardrobe. But I do, I do think it's more like those things, drawing us into the presence of God, um, drawing us into these, these experiences that define us and then return us to our own world transformed than it is a manual where we get how-to tips, um, yeah, hopefully it didn't come across too strong, but you know what I mean, I think. Okay, I will say amen, amen. <laughs> uh, and okay, so one last question for real. Um, do, do you believe there's any way in which we should understand Jesus's uh, do this in remembrance of me referring to uh, communion is, is kind of drawing up Deuteronomy's legacy and employing it in that, in that act? <laughs> I do. I do. I think um, I, I think we find this especially in Paul, actually, in First in Corinthians, when he reflects on the, the Lord's Supper um, and the way in which he does it. This whole idea that um, basically he's he's recollecting in such a way, just like Deuteronomy is, where he's drawing people into the original moment so that they can kind of stand there themselves, but also drawing them back out to say, OK, but now in the present and looking forward until our Lord comes again, essentially, um, this you're supposed to live in light of these things. And I think it's very Deuteronomic, even though that's not the correct use of it there. But uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole thing to be said about Paul's use of Deuteronomy. That's David Lincecum's work. And um, and even I, I worked in the Gospel of Mark, and it was surprising how even small things like uh, the language that's used to describe the transfiguration, which everybody takes to be kind of a Sinai account, um, it doesn't actually come from Exodus's telling of the Sinai account, but Deuteronomy's retelling of the Sinai account. I didn't know that. Uh, and and so there's way in which it's the memory of Israel that actually is going forward, at least in the Mark's gospel, um, uh, even more so than the, the, the original telling of the book of Exodus. So, yeah, there's all kinds of interesting tidbits. Sorry to drop you drop that on you. No, but it there. makes sense, doesn't it? Because Deuteronomy, in a lot of ways, I mean, it, it is kind of the encapsulation of the Pentateuch for future generations. And so I guess it makes yeah. sense that we would find it as well in the early church, right? Well, AJ, it's been fantastic. I love the book. I encourage everybody uh, to read it because, again, it, it, it goes beyond. Uh, although you don't do anything pastoral with it, you kind of hand everybody like nuggets that are so easy to take into real life theology in the church. Uh, I appreciate your time. AJ. Well, thank you, Drew. I appreciate it. It's been great. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.